Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to this week's episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. Today we are talking about potentially what is the healthiest diet on the planet. We know that nutrition and diet is a form of personalized medicine. And today we're going to talk about one of the most evidence-based and proven diets that can help you with chronic disease and of course, chronic pain. My guest this week is Dr. Stephen Masley. He is a physician, nutritionist, trained chef, best-selling author, and creator of the number one all-time health program for public television. His work has been viewed over a million times on PBS, the Discovery Channel, and over 700 different media outlets. His latest book is entitled The Mediterranean Method, which we'll be talking about later today on the episode. And to get started with The Mediterranean Diet, I have got a really great download for you today. So you can download this for free. It's called The Quick Start Guide to Create Your Own Mediterranean Kitchen. To download this, all you have to do is text the word 167-DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. That's 167 download to the number 44222. Or you can open up a new browser on your computer and you can type in the URL integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 167 download. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 167 download. And you can access that quick start guide to create your Mediterranean kitchen today. Okay, I'm excited to talk to Dr. Stephen Masley about the Mediterranean method, his new book, and how the Mediterranean diet can be one of the healthiest diets on the planet. Let's get started and let's meet Dr. Stephen Masley. Hey there, Stephen. Welcome back to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here again. Hey, Joe. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm so excited to talk to you because we are going to go in really deep on the Mediterranean diet, talk about all the parts and pieces and benefits for people. I'm so excited that someone is publishing a book on the Mediterranean diet and how to do it the right way. Tell us why it was important for you to publish this book at this time. Well, when you look at diets, I mean, there's so much confusing information and all these things we tell you can't eat. And one of my experiences, they're really hard to follow. And a lot of people end up dropping out, even a well-intended program by three to six months, they can't handle it anymore. So if you look at What's the easiest diet to follow? And which diets have the best health benefits on the planet? I think by and far, US News and World Report got it right. They ranked it as the number one diet overall and the easiest diet to follow. So I think that's really important that we give something that's realistic to follow and do. Yeah. What's so important about what you just said is both in clinical practice and in studies, we need to look at things on a long-term basis. So what can people do long-term? So of course, there are some studies where people go on very drastic types of diets for two to three weeks, and they may see you know, metabolic improvements as well as other improvements. But really, this diet is the one that people can do long-term. And I know this is kind of close to home for you, this diet, isn't it? Well, it is. You know, I've worked in Europe I've worked as a sailboat captain in southern France, and I spent the last seven months sailing from Spain to Turkey, you know, along coastline, shopping, eating out, really studying what is it about the diet in the Mediterranean that for 
you know, and they're different. You know, Spain and Greece and Italy, they eat differently, but they have things in common that are central to what it's all about that makes a huge difference for people. And so, no, I had this firsthand, up close, day after day. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. Well, next time you take a trip and you do some research on diet, especially to the Mediterranean, make sure to give me a call. But to get us started with this, please tell us what is a Mediterranean diet from your perspective? It's this incredible variety of fruit, foods that are served in Mediterranean countries, all the way from you know, Spain, France, Italy, Greece, Turkey, North Africa. And here's the things they have in common. So, of course, Greek food looks different than Italian food. But what they have in common is they use lots of vegetables and fruit. And it's fresh and it's local, oftentimes. The predominant oil is olive oil. They eat nuts. Um, they serve beans, if not every day, four or five times a week. They have drink lots of water. And then they also have a little bit of red wine. For protein, they tend to eat seafood three to five times a week, much more than we do here. And with some poultry, you know, some clean poultry. They don't have a lot of red meat. They don't eat a lot of sugar. And they really don't have preservatives and chemicals in their food. I mean, it's basically mostly a plant-based diet with some clean animal protein. And it's real food that you make. Yeah. And it's simple. It's not complicated recipes. They're really easy things to make. Yeah. Simple, beautifully prepared, delicious whole foods, which of course is a, a really good way to start to describe the Mediterranean diet. All right. Now let's, you said a whole bunch there, which is, I mean, right there, you said enough that people would just copy down and take that to the supermarket and then put it on their plate and live a healthier life. But I want to dial down to some of these topics because they're a little controversial. So the okay. first one you said, which has kind of been the hot topic of like 2019, at least in the nutrition circles I move in, is beans. Yes. So on there a traditional- There is a lot of controversy, absolutely. A lot of controversy. So on a traditional Mediterranean diet and based on the research, the evidence-based research that you've looked at, how many times a week can someone or should someone consume beans? And what does a portion of beans look like? It's probably a half cup served with vegetables as a side dish or part of a main court or in a soup. And they're eating them almost every day. You know, hummus or pureed beans in a pate that, you know, goes with something or beans in soup or beans sprinkled on a salad. So um, lentils, red beans, um, white beans, and there's endless variety of them. And I think some of the controversy has to do with the lectins, right? But first, before we talk about lectins, we should mention that of all the foods that have antioxidant capacity, the ability to block oxidation, beans are number one. Mm. If there's not even a close second. You know, it's only which bean you could fight over, which might, they're the best foods for blocking oxidation on the planet, which is a real important part of aging. They're loaded with protein and B vitamins and calcium and fiber. I mean, they're a nutritional powerhouse. So people mention that lectins block some of the nutrient content. Spinach does too, but we don't say don't eat spinach. And, right. and similarly, we shouldn't say, okay, you can't have beans. But the lectins, I'll admit, some people are lectin intolerant. And I would guess from my clinical practice, it's about 10% of people they get more than just a little bit of gas. They get real discomfort. Mm -hmm. So like any food, whether it's gluten or dairy or soy, if you're intolerant, you should avoid it. Right. So I would say to the 5 to 10% of people who have real discomfort when they eat beans, don't eat them. 
And the other 90 to 95% who get all those health benefits should probably eat them more often. That's, I mean, my take and from all the research I've read about lectins and beans and so forth. We're on the same page. So if a practitioner is seeing 10 patients per day, you're maybe looking at one to two, max probably three people for where beans should be, quote unquote, eliminated from their diet. The interesting thing that I find about beans is when you, you know, do a food frequency questionnaire and you really dial down into beans and how much people are eating it, sometimes their portions are huge. Yes. And then with that, there can be lots of different, as you mentioned, digestive complaints. There can be glycemic implications. There's lots of different things with beans. Okay. Oh, glycemic. Let me comment on that. That's important. Generally speaking, if you add beans to any meal that has any other carb sources, whether it's bread or potatoes or other vegetables, they lower and give you better blood sugar control. So for diabetics, elevated blood sugar, beans are one of the best food to give you a slight stable rise in blood sugar for many hours. So, I mean, and when you look at the glycemic response to beans, it's excellent. And it actually improves the whole overall meal for blood sugar control. Excellent. Super important information. Okay. Number two on my list here is seafood. Yes. Seafood. If you look at most diets and most dietary recommendations, seafood's on there probably twice a week. And I have done a lot of research into the study around chronic pain and diet specifically. And there's some good research building that you need four to five servings of seafood per week. And some people are a little bit fearful of that because of contamination and mercury and things like that. Tell us why increasing seafood may be an important strategy for some people to optimize their health. Well, if it's cold water seafood, then it provides long chain omega-3s, which are anti-inflammatory. And to me, you know, three servings a week, you know, about a four or five ounce serving is about what you get from having a gram a day of EPA and DHA. So something that clearly has been shown in studies to block inflammation. The downsides to seafood, to me, one of the big ones is mercury, Mm -hmm. you know, and mercury contamination. And I'm prone to mercury elevations, and many of my patients have been over time. And I've measured mercury in almost all my patients when they come in for an eval. And we've actually done studies on which type of fish predict your mercury level and your EPA, DHA levels. And it's really the big mouth fish that's the big culprit. So that's swordfish, shark, kingfish, tuna. Tuna being, especially ahi tuna, Mm. um, is a major issue. Uh, Those are the ones that grouper, sea bass, or others. I mean, all of those big mouth predatory fish, which are popular in restaurants, impact your mercury level. So I usually say avoid that. And actually in the Mediterranean, they eat a lot of shellfish. Yeah. The Mediterranean Sea has been fished out. There's not any big mouth fish, honestly, hardly left, not on a regular basis. So mostly people are eating little fish like sardines, what we would call bait, yeah. and a lot of shellfish. Yeah. And they do have some, you know, other dorad and what is it? Sea, little, they have a little sea bass that's really popular. They're delicious. I think some of the chemicals come from farm-raised fish. So I'm never a huge farm-raised fish fan because those are have higher PCP levels in them than do some of the um, other wild-caught ones. So those are my real tips for choosing the right seafood. So of course, on this podcast, we're focused on chronic pain. But as, I, as we think about diet and the aging population, and we're talking about seafood, for those that are, let's say, suffering from cognitive decline, is this something increasing seafood in the diet could potentially help them with that? 
I would say clearly, we've, I've published studies from my clinic showing that eating more seafood clearly improves brain processing speed, memory, overall brain performance, associated with less memory loss, assuming you don't have elevated mercury levels. So, I mean, you have to control and measure that for people who eat lots of seafood. But if you eat the right types of seafood, usually it's not a problem. Yeah. I know through going through your book and reading it and starting to look at the recipes in it and, of course, all the science, I know you're definitely someone who looks at the evidence base. I know you have a little bit of a twist to your Mediterranean diet. Tell us what that twist is. Well, there's two parts to this. One is think about historically who had all the benefit from a Mediterranean diet and who was following it. They were farmers, fishermen, herders, people who were active six, seven, eight, up to 10 hours a day. And almost none of us, I mean, I would love to have that much activity, but I don't have the time. You know, I'm trying to get seven, eight, ten 10 hours a week. I don't get that every day. So I think, one, we have to modify it for the glycemic load because we don't have as much activity as we saw back in the 50s and 60s, 1950s, 1960s, when this study was first studied. But the other aspect is in the EPIC trial, that was this big trial in Greece looking at the Mediterranean diet. And they looked at which components had the biggest benefit, which had the least. Turns out the grains had the least benefit of following any part of the Mediterranean diet. And to me, it's the glycemic load. And, and then they broke it down into this other analysis. And they looked at if you followed a Mediterranean diet and you had a low glycemic version, you got far more health benefit mm-hmm. and better blood sugar, cholesterol response, better weight loss. So that's for me the twist is a low glycemic, low sugar load version of a Mediterranean diet. Yes, there's still lots of vegetables and fruits, but the grain portions are clearly smaller or you can cut them out. And flour is really encouraged. I encourage people to avoid flour because it has such a high glycemic response. And sugar, I mean, that would be kind of like a rare treat because sugar feeds inflammation. It feeds abnormal blood sugar control. You know, we're supposed to eat like fresh fruit for dessert, not some sugary confection. So you give people the option to either eliminate grains or the serving size, and of course, we're talking about whole grains, correct? Yeah, only, yes, only whole grains. And And obviously, anybody who's gluten sensitive should have nothing to do with gluten. Right, exactly. And you're, uh, of course, the serving portion is smaller. It's smaller. We're talking a half cup of a whole grain. And if there's pasta, you're having pasta, like in Italy, is an appetizer. It's not the main course. Mm -hmm. You don't have a platter of it. You get like three, four, tops, five little twirls on a fork and that's it. That's right. And that's, you know, then you go on and eat your vegetables and protein for the main course. That's right. I have a friend here in New York City. He's, he's of Italian descent. He's born and raised in Italy and he has an Italian restaurant here in New York City. Uh, the restaurant's called Et Cetera, Et Cetera, um, if anyone wants to visit it. And he serves incredible gluten-free pasta, first of all, mm-hmm. um, that he makes in his, uh, nice. you know, in his kitchen there. And his serving of pasta comes on this little, it's a little small, pretty much smaller than the palm of your hand. And yeah. it's delicious and it's satisfying. And I'm of Italian descent and I've actually ate with my family in Italy. And it just kind of warms my heart that, you know, there are people like us out there who understand how food can be beautiful and healthy and how it should be served. And because part of your family and your culture, it's, it's really a wonderful mm-hmm. experience. All right. So I'm sitting down, I'm building my plate out. I have the option according to Dr. Stephen Masley, to either eliminate grains or my grains can be less than a half a cup, basically. Ideally, whole grains, gluten-free if you have a gluten intolerance or you have celiacs. 
then you're also saying that beans can be there too because they help yes. buffer the glycemic load. Of course, uh, lots of fruits and vegetables. Do you limit the, the fruit servings at all based on glycemic load? I mean, more it's like after a meal, you know, it's like a cup of berries or most of the fruit really do have a low glycemic load if you're talking at one cup portion. You know, watermelon, a cup of it is like, you know, glycemic, zero to 10 is considered low and it's like four or five. Right. Almost all the melons are four or five. An apple, a pear, they're all low. You know, an apricot is low, a peach is low. <laughs> you know, berries are usually the best. They have the lowest glycemic load and the most fiber and nutrients. So. Um, and vegetables, uh, only a potato is the only vegetable I would really limit. Yeah. Um, and I, if people do eat potatoes, it should be the little ones with the skin on and you boil them because that gives them a lower glycemic load. Even if you refrigerate them before you eat them, it is, it's even lower. But mostly I tend to avoid the potatoes and greens and reds. And the color is the critical part. Your plate should be beautiful and colorful. And I would say at least have a two- cut portion of vegetables with lunch and dinner every day. That's an essential part of a Mediterranean diet. They eat so many vegetables that we really don't have that quantity by any stretch. Yeah, vegetables are a key portion of their, of course, the plate and their culture in general. Like they crave vegetables actually, where, you know, we've taught people to crave sugar. Yes, and animal protein portions are smaller. Yeah. I mean, we're talking three, four, not more than five ounce portions of fish or poultry, you know, it's not like a, you know, 12, 16 ounce steak like you might see here. They would think that was like for an entire family. It would never occur to them that was for one person. Yeah. And so we should talk about red meat specifically. We talked about seafood, but let's talk, obviously, if you're increasing your seafood, then other types of meat are probably going to decrease. But what about red meat specifically? There's lots of controversy around red meat. Well, you know, traditionally, they only eat it a couple times a month. Yeah. So fascinating, isn't it? Um, yeah. So it's just not part of their culture. It's not that they never have it. They do. But it's not like a daily event or probably even a weekly event. That, And when they do, it's, you know, like raised on a smaller farm. It's local. It didn't come from a feedlot where it was given hormones and pesticide-enriched grains and herbicide-enriched plants and no, it's basically, it's probably not organic certified, but it was organically like raised yeah. on a small plot of land and it ran around and free range and, and then it shows up, you know, in, in the market someday. And so it's clean and they would have it on occasion maybe to celebrate with. And if they do, really when they use red meat, it's more of a flavoring. They might put a little bit of bacon with their green beans or something. They don't have a huge slab. Yeah, almost um, so it's really like, quite a different use of animal protein than we do. I think yeah. almost look at it like a condiment as a condiment. Yeah. yeah, red meat is typically more of a condiment, and but you'll see poultry and seafood often and nuts and seeds, which can be healthy snacks for people. Oh healthy, yeah, very um, very common to see, see people eating nuts and seeds. That's probably one of the more that olives and nuts are probably the most common snacks you would see people eating. Talk to us about olive oil. It's interesting when you look at kind of FDA regulations and recommendations that we can make regarding olive oil here in the United States versus what they can actually do in Europe are quite different. How many servings of olive oil should someone include in their diet on a modified or a Mediterranean diet? And what are some of the benefits of that? Well, you know, in the Predimed study that was this heart cognitive weight loss, different versions of looking at study, they gave them up to a liter per week. Wow. 
So we're talking any, but you know, generally we're talking anywhere from two to four up to six tablespoons of olive oil per person per day. Right. I tend to think of about a tablespoon per person per meal is kind of a portion that that I would use in my recipes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and they don't cook with it at high heat. You're using medium low heat because at high heat, that oil gets damaged and you lose some of the beneficial properties. It actually turns bitter as well. So it doesn't taste as good. Yeah. So important to use, you know, low heat cooking with olive oil. If you're going to do high heat cooking, you should use a different oil like avocado oil or almond oil or something else. Yeah. So two tablespoons of olive oil at a sitting, let's say at, at your meal, basically. So that could be like on your salad, you know, on your salad, there's going to be a tablespoon of olive oil per person and maybe a teaspoon of vinegar and a, probably a table of olive oil drizzled over your vegetables and that are being served with, um, at the same meal. Yeah. How do you respond to people with regards to, of course, lots of oils, but olive oil specifically, I think, is the one that we're talking about when they say, well, that's still a processed food. And if you have heart disease, you really shouldn't have any type of processed oil. If you'd like to eat a whole olive, that's okay, but not olive oil. Well, it just doesn't match with the facts. You know, when you look at what's been published in randomized clinical trials, adding olive oil, it improves your cholesterol profile, your blood sugar, your blood pressure. It decreases your cancer risk. It lowers inflammation. And it has been shown to reduce your risk for heart attacks and strokes. So in people following like an American Heart Association diet or a Mediterranean diet where they added extra olive oil, it lowered their rate of heart attacks and strokes. It improved their cognitive performance and it helped them lose weight. So, I mean, that's just what's proven. I can't help what people say. (laughs) All I can share is really it's hard to discredit olive oil. Now, there is olive oil that's, I mean, to me, if you just squeeze it once and it the oil comes out of the olive, that's extra virgin. Mm -hmm. If you have to use heat and chemicals to get it out, that would be regular olive oil. To me, that is processed. And I do ask people to avoid what I call processed olive oil, which was when they have to use heat, you know, something beyond just mechanical pressing it. So if you're, you're putting chemicals in it to pull out more oil, I think you've gone over the top. Yeah. Okay, Stephen. So you and I are out to dinner. We're sitting down. We're having this wonderful, beautiful Mediterranean meal. I got two cups of vegetables. I've got some berries sprinkled on there. I've got some gluten-free grains. Maybe there's some beans on the salad as well. I'm having a really nice piece of cold water fish, which I love. I love fish and seafood. Um, I eat it up to five times a week. And do I get to order wine if we're eating together? Well, yes. Absolutely. Should be red wine. Clearly red wine has more medicinal benefits than white wine. Beer and hard liquor really don't have any medicinal benefits. And I would actually say they're probably harmful, you know, more harmful than benefit. So the only alcohol I can really recommend to people is red wine. But again, the first thing we do when we sit down at that table is they're going to give us a bottle of water. The only question is sparkling or flat. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have a bottle of water. And then we're going to get like a glass or two of red wine. And they're not, you know, it's not like we each get a bottle of red wine and we just get to drink it. No, that's overdoing it. So the wine part really does have to be in moderation to have a benefit. And how big is a glass in those terms? Four and a half ounces per serving or five servings per 750 ml bottle. So that's 150 mils. 
Yeah. Because some of our wine glasses nowadays, you can literally pour a whole oh, bottle yeah. in the glass. Oh, yes. And I've seen people do that, actually. <laughs> That's, no, I, we should be, instead of a glass, I should say a serving and specify what a serving is. Yeah, yeah. All right, talk to us about dairy because there are lots of intolerances out there and people are yes. aware of these intolerances and they may or may not show up with trying out a Mediterranean diet. So Europeans, Mediterraneans, they definitely use dairy on a regular basis. And it's mostly like a garnish. You know, they sprinkle a little crumbled on there. They're not large portions. Um, and they're using minimally processed, um, heavily probiotic rich dairy products like mm -hmm. kefir or plain yogurt. When you buy yogurt in Europe, it's mostly plain. In the U.S., the yogurt section's like 30 feet long, and it's mostly 20 brands with different sugar and fruit added to them, flavorings. and Processed yucky cheese. Processed stuff that's, um, you know, yeah. my, I always ask my patients, which has more sugar in it, yogurt with fruit or ice cream? And they look at me like, oh, no. This is a trick question. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they, they, you know, because I'm asking them, they know, yes, it's yogurt. So it should be plain, no sugar added or skip it. So the type of dairy they eat is they don't drink milk. You know, they don't put much, if any, milk in their coffee. I mean, so when they use dairy, it's either like kefir, which is very probiotic rich, plain yogurt or a little cheese grated on a dish. And it's probably like camembert or blue, or it's, again, probiotic rich. So, and if you're dairy intolerant, then avoid it. Don't eat dairy if it bothers you. I mean, that's like, you know, some people it'll give them all sorts of symptoms and joint aches and mucus. And so, right. but I would say, again, most people are not probiotic dairy intolerant. They can eat plain yogurt. They could eat a little bit of garnished cheese, you know, on a dish like blue cheese or something. It's not going to bother them and it's nutrient rich. So that's how it's used in Europe. Very different than when we put these huge slabs or like serve lasagna with pounds of cheese in it. You know, they don't do that. So there's quite a contrast in how they use dairy and how we use dairy. Yeah. They don't have fluorescent yellow cheese either. Somehow we have fluorescent yellow cheese in America. And then whenever I counsel people on nutrition and we're talking about you know, the dairy aspect, the first thing they say is, what am I going to use in my coffee? I use milk in my coffee. And if you think to the Mediterranean diet, I love visiting Spain because in Spain, they have something called a cortado, mm -hmm. which is a single shot of espresso with just yeah. a little bit of steamed milk on top. And it's delicious. And it obviously gives you your caffeine fix, but you're yes. not eating or drinking in this case, 18 ounces of processed, um, you know, dairy, which can be, can be harmful for some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stephen, how many books have you written now on nutrition? This book, this is my seventh book now. Congratulations. It's the, this is the first one where they actually put in pictures. You know, the pictures really came out nice. I was like, wow, these are like awesome pictures. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful. So I have my favorite Mediterranean recipes here and some photos to go with it. So that was a first, but this is my seventh book. Tell us what you hope will happen with this seventh book on the Mediterranean diet versus the six before it? Well, this is really a chance. I mean, we could have a large scale conversion here. Right now, we have very small percent of the population actually following a Mediterranean diet. And we know that irregardless of your genetics or ethnicity, health situation, 
We know if you add a Mediterranean diet, you're going to decrease your risk for heart disease, for memory loss, helps you lose weight, um, you feel better, and it's like delicious food and it's easy to follow. So I think this is a chance to transform the health of America today. And the closer we follow a Mediterranean diet, the better our health is going to be. And I think we're at, and right now we're at a tipping point where so much of our food supply is processed, chemicals, I mean, not things that you would promote. I know I follow, I've watched and followed you for years. So, I mean, this is like a realistic eating plan people could follow. And I really hope to spread the word and make it easy for people to eat healthy food, love it, delicious, and stick with it long term. Yeah. Talking or thinking about dietary recommendations as we head into 2020, there should be new USDA dietary recommendations coming out. The current ones at times mimic a Mediterranean diet, but just really have never arrived there. You think we'll see them move closer toward it? And what should someone be cognizant of with our current USDA? Well, remember the USDA food pyramid is designed to market US food products. It's not designed to promote health. That's the disconnect. People think, okay, this is what we're supposed to recommend. No, they're out marketing U.S. farmer products, which are, they're marketing things like sugar and sodas and grains that we produce as an economy. So, you know, they're boosting GNP. Right. That's right. (laughs) It's all about gross domestic products. And destroying the health of Americans at the same time. I think that's the disconnect here. We have to have, you know, I have my own food pyramid in here. And the grains are not in the bottom of it. Right. It's fruit and vegetables. And the bottom of the pyramid for me is the lifestyle that goes with it. You know, it's the activity. It's the cooking. It's being active, being outdoors with nature and communicating and being with other people. Yeah. I mean, especially over food, not eating in front of a you know computer or television or smartphone. You know, it's connecting with people over food. That's the essential lifestyle part. So to me, that's the base of what the new food pyramid should be. And I don't expect the U.S. food pyramid to get it. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not waiting for a change from them. Yeah, probably little change will happen. But we can keep our you know, toes and fingers and earlobes crossed for that. But it's interesting, as you mentioned, as kind of the GDP is going up, people's health is actually going down. Yeah. So why they don't see that inverse relationship and obviously look across the pond and see all these countries that are eating this diet and, quite frankly, have a longer life expectancy. We're looking at populations of people now in America that will have shorter life expectancies than potentially we have. Well, they don't just live five, six, seven years longer. Their health span, where they're independent and active, is more than a decade longer. So the biggest difference isn't just how long they live, but how long they live well, vibrantly. They've got more than a decade on us. Talk to so, us about, I mean, that's so important. I mean, I have, you know, parents that are getting older. And of course, we have the baby boomers are the fastest growing segment of our population. Talk to us about that. You know, let's say what those last two months really should look like in life versus potentially what some of the last 10 to 20 years look like for people. Well, in our 90s, we should still be active, probably working part time because we need something to do. Right. There you you know, we're not disabled. We're not in pain. We feel good each day. Do we have some health issues at 95? Probably, but not that it keeps us from going to the market and shopping, 
and um, coming home and cooking food and, and having a joyous evening with family and working still. I mean, yeah. there's nothing to stop any of that except for ourselves. All right. So holidays have just passed and people may be looking back and saying, oh, my diet's not good. I overindulge. I ate too much. What can someone start to do to shift toward your Mediterranean diet? Well, I would look at some of the recipes in here. I'd look at how do you, I've made it simple. And right now I've got a special offer for your list. If they pre-order the book or buy it in the first month that's out, I have cooking classes to give them to make it easier to follow some of these recipes. What are the tips that you can get? So I'll send you a link that you could put up and they can get my cooking classes to go with the book. And to me, that would be so helpful. What are the key points when you're preparing food that if you follow these steps, it makes it easier to cook, more delicious, more nutritious, and your family and friends will love it. So that's what I would like to offer is, you know, some little tips and tricks that make it simpler to prepare meals. And that's something I really got from traveling the Mediterranean. Yeah. Don't make it overcomplicated. Don't add too many ingredients. Simple can be better when it comes to good quality food. Yeah, five simple, delicious, healthy ingredients can make a wonderful meal, right? It doesn't have to be hard. Yeah. What I love about your approach is obviously you're a physician. So obviously you're bringing a, you know, a medical approach to this. You're a nutritionist. You're also a chef. So it's a really wonderful combination of all three that always wind up in your books. Maybe can you tell us a healthy dessert that we might find in that book of yours back there? Because people, you know, they want to kind of feed their sweet tooth at times, which is understandable, but something that can be healthy and not damage, you know, that well, glycemic a, response. A, a few choices. So the simplest thing we would get often would be fruit that's, you know, either berries or melon or something, and they might put it in a glass and then they pour a little Moscato, you know, a little sweet wine on it, a couple of tablespoons, and you're just in a little bit of mint. So it's just fresh fruit, a little bit of sweet wine pulled over it, poured over it, um, a little bit of mint. And that's, I mean, it takes you like two minutes to prepare that. It's yeah. so easy. Ch dark chocolate is very popular in the Mediterranean. And they'll frequently have dark chocolate, you know, at least 75, preferably 80% cocoa nut not milk chocolate. They'll have that for dessert. But, you know, I even have a blueberry ricotta cheesecake in here, you know, because an Italian version with, you know, plain ricotta and orange rind and, and blueberries. I mean, so... <laughs> Sounds delicious. I'm coming to your place. There's a huge variety of things you can make that are for dessert that are still really flavorful and, uh, and can be healthy. Yeah. Okay. So I recommend everyone, of course, check out Dr. Masley's book, The Mediterranean Method. Uh, Stephen, tell everyone how they can learn more about you, about the book, and all the great things you have to offer. Well, they can go to drmasley.com, D-R-M-A-S-L-E-Y.com, my, my website. I've got a blog. I've got free recipes. I have a variety of information there that I'm happy to share with people that are free to help them transform their health. Excellent. So make sure to check out drmasley.com. That's www.drmasley.com. Uh, make sure to download his free cooking tips. We'll include the link to that. And of course, check out his book, The Mediterranean Method. The Mediterranean Diet or a Modified Mediterranean Diet is the diet that I recommend for people most of the time who have chronic pain. So make sure to check it out. And of course, check out his book. I want to thank Dr. Mazzi for being on the Healing Pain Podcast once again. We appreciate his time and work and we'll see you all next week. 
you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.